Hey all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking about a lot of the momentum we've been building in the environmental movement here in LA. We've got a moratorium on gas plants opening, and we're moving towards stopping neighborhood drilling. So joining me today from Food and Water Watch is Alex Nagy and Walker Foley. How are you all doing today? Awesome. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm Walker. great, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So let's start off with the gas plants. So these were three gas plants around Southern California uh, that LA wanted to repower to provide uh, non-renewable energy. Let's talk about why we didn't want these open and sort of the process of getting them closed. Right, so these three gas plants on Southern California's coasts are in Playa del Rey, El Segundo. Um, the other two are in the um, South Bay area in Wilmington and in Long Beach and we knew that back in the early 90s, um, a state law had been passed that had required these gas plants to eliminate ocean water cooling, and DWP at the time had agreed to shut down these specific units that used the ocean water cooling and rebuild them, but that decision was back in the 90s, and then they renegotiated the timeline back in the, um, you know, 2010, they renegotiated that timeline. So it's been a long process of them trying to figure out what they want to do with this. And then a year ago, they looked at whether or not they want to rebuild these gas units with renewable energy or not. So that was a really positive step done by the Board of Commissioners, and that was led by Auto Vasquez. Um, and she's been really pushing for you know, LEDWP to take a step back on fossil fuel investments and figure out why are we in 2018, 2019. Can I ask, why are we looking at doubling down on fossil fuels in this time period? Right. I mean, again, it goes back to these really old um, regulations that were put out by the state back in the 1990s. And then in the in 2010, they renegotiated this timeline and actually asked for more time. They asked for a 10-year extension on shutting down these gas units. Um, and so what ended up happening is the, the Department of Water and Power did a study looking at can we replace this with renewable energy the study that came that came out was actually pretty biased in its scope and the department was looking at moving forward with just rebuilding the gas plant so we've been working for the last you know several years really pushing the utility to stop investing in fossil fuels stop rebuilding gas and from our perspective a lot of that came from the Aliso Canyon work and the communities where these gas plants are. They're being poisoned every day by these types of toxic emissions. You know, you have benzene and toluene and formaldehyde uh, spewing out of these plants every day. So the communities who live right there are breathing in these very harmful chemicals. And then, of course, you have the climate change causing um, atmospheric pollutants like, you know, CO2 and the like. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we wanted to, to stop this from happening. And it finally took, you know, a concerted effort in pushing the mayor because Mayor Garcetti likes to tout his climate leadership. And we really believe that this was kind of an opportunity for him to, to step out and do the right thing, given the right amount of pressure, kind of the right dialogue and conversation we had with his office and the, and the DWP staff just going back and forth and realizing this really has to come from the mayor because the staff is just not there yet. Can I ask, how does this interface with SB 100, which is supposedly or supposed to get California off of fossil fuels completely by 2045? Right. So SB 100 was passed in 2018 by the state legislature in California, and it does set a 100% renewable energy goal by 2045. However, the renewable portfolio standard that it adopted is still pretty flawed. It allows the state to consider uh, fuels like biomass and biogas 
renewable. Um, it, there's also a loophole in there that allows power plants that have been in effect burning since gas since 1995 to continue to do so. Um, so there's a lot of really strange loopholes in there. It also allows for something called renewable energy credits, which is essentially paper renewable energy where LADWP or any other utility could um, basically purchase credits. So for every watt of energy produced by a wind farm out in Wyoming, that also produces one renewable energy credit. So instead of developing more renewable energy, we're just going to buy that credit. So there's a lot of problems with that. Um, and so what we're really trying to do in Los Angeles is get LEDWP to lead by example. And they are studying a 100% renewable energy um, goal right now. They've been doing this process for the last two years that we've been involved with. And again, we're trying to make sure that the flaws that were overlooked by the state because of moneyed interests are not overlooked here in Los Angeles. And we really do adopt a robust clean energy portfolio standard. So how LA is going to do that, number one, is like stop building these gas plants. That's obvious. The next step is getting them to actually shut down these gas plants, which this announcement did not do. So those three gas plants I mentioned on the coast will continue to be operating until we actually get that commitment by the city to shut them down. So what is driving LADWP to want these gas plants or to see them as like the best alternative at this point? Is it just that they are getting a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry? Is it that their engineers believe this is the only way we can generate enough power for LA? Like what's their motivation? I think that there is a different um, set of factors on why LADWP wants to reinvest in gas. The first is that it's what they know and it's what they're comfortable with. DWP is not the most forward progressive uh, utility in California in large part because they've been exempt from a lot of the statewide regulations that have been imposed on other investor-owned utilities. So private utilities like Southern California Edison or San Diego Gas and Electric or PG&E, they've actually had to adopt much more aggressive local solar programs, um, battery storage programs, and DWP has not had to meet those requirements. Yeah, LADWP is just really comfortable with sticking with what they know, and they haven't been forced to adopt progressive clean energy policy like the rest of the state utilities have had to do. So they are really repeating these 20, 10, 20-year-old um, excuses that, you know, the technology isn't ready, that it's too expensive. And meanwhile, they're being left behind by these private for-profit utilities that are being mandated by the state to actually do these things and show that it is viable. And that if they were just to actually set these types of aggressive goals and go for them, California is well more than capable of meeting them and actually exceeding them. So LADWP has a lot of catching up to do, and that's our responsibility as advocates and ratepayers and citizens, uh, people who live in Los Angeles who live near these gas plants or facilities or just care about the environment or climate change in general, to really make the utility accountable to us. LADWP is the largest public utility in the country, so there there's a lot of work to be done around energy democracy and actually holding this utility accountable to the people, and that's the type of organizing work that we want to do moving forward. Now that we got this gas plant win, it's all about, okay, what's next? How do we implement the clean energy solutions, and how do we 
engage with the utility on this process of how to go 100% renewable energy and make sure they're doing it by 2030. So that's the goal that we're putting out there. We did a study showing it's possible, and that means getting rid of nuclear power, which LA still relies on, and excluding all of these types of dirty or fake renewable energy resources like biomass, biogas, renewable energy credits, and the like. So is there a financial trade-off going renewable um, 100%? Like, will it cost LA a whole lot more? Is the Are the gas plants the cheaper alternative? Like, what are we looking there in terms of budget? Right. So Food and Water Watch commissioned this study by Synapse Energy Economics, and we asked them to look at this and really just model and sh- and see if the technology we have today at the price points we have today can even just get us to 100% fully by 2030. And it showed that we could. Not only did it show that we can, but it showed that it would be no increased capital costs to the utility. And that was considering at the time we did this study, LADWP was going to rebuild these gas plants and invest upwards of $6 billion to rebuild them. So these are the types of capital costs that the utility can now shift towards the clean energy future. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a combination of things, of, of the utility building solar in Los Angeles, battery storage in Los Angeles, but also we need to see an increase of um, programs that incentivize people to put solar on their rooftop independently of the utility, but something that can feed back into the grid. And these are the types of programs that other utilities like San Diego Gas and Electric, a smaller utility than DWP, is doing and actually, you know, kicking DWP's butt, like really going far and above what the our, our LA utility is doing. So there's a lot of stuff to be done and about making solar accessible to renters and low-income households and a lot of programs that DWP is just barely tiptoeing and considering. And so there's a lot we have to push on. But it will be no increased cost to the utility. The question is on the ratepayer side of things, how can we make this transition in an equitable way so that low-income residents or renters are benefiting, but also seeing an, uh, a net benefit on their bill as well? And so to get into the weeds for a second, uh, when we talk about uh, LADWP approving certain plans or not approving certain plans, is this just something that Mayor Garcetti decides? Um, is this something that the Board of Commissioners just tells people to do? Like, what does this policy process generally look like? That's a really great question, and um, it's kind of twofold. So the mayor of Los Angeles is responsible for hiring and firing the general manager of the utility, which is like the CEO. And and this person, David Wright, um, is in charge of putting the staff in, you know, on track to do these types of things, rolling out these programs, um, putting the solutions on the table. The mayor also appoints the five board of commissioners that vote on all of these types of decisions, and they cannot be done without a vote by the board. So the mayor of Los Angeles does have a huge amount of political power to set the agenda of the utility. However, the staff are the ones that are getting the job done at the end of the day. And if they feel like dragging their feet, they're going to drag their feet. And so that really means we need really smart leadership in the general manager. We need the staff to get on board, and that's an internal kind of culture question. Is the staff that DWP has currently ready to do this transition and ready to work with community and advocates and really be transparent and accountable to our needs. And just history and my own personal experience will tell us that they want to, but they don't know how. And there's a lot more pushing that they need to feel from us and from the mayor's office to 
to do this. And what is that pushing going to look like? Like, what are you looking at in terms of organizing and stuff? And where do you see the points of like the pressure points that we can use to, to force them towards a renewable future? So the big points of intervention that we have as community organizers is going to be in this 100% renewable energy study process that they're doing. There's essentially one year left in this process. And it's been going on since 2017. It was directed by the city council in 2016. So all in all, it's a four-year process. And really in this last year, our job is to figure out how to make them come to the public and be accountable to the public. They have long been promising that they're going to do public participation and outreach, but they have no clue what that means. They have real no no real priority on putting that agenda forward and making it transparent to us. Mm-hmm. We've asked repeatedly, we've offered, you know, hey, let's do this in eight places across the city. Let's include South LA, let's include East LA communities that have always been left out of these conversations um, and they just don't have the interest at the this time so our next big campaign within a campaign is really to get them to come out to the public and do this type of public process with us hearings presentations um, getting input from the community on the types of solutions they want to see in their communities and why. Um, we've been working a lot with neighborhood councils and Council District 11, uh, where a council member Mike, Mike Bonin is, and they're really concerned about things like sea level rise and how climate change and our energy uh, solutions can, can work together and, and have some really good overlap. So there's a lot of people around the city who are really passionate about these ideas and have their own um, perspectives and things they want to get out of it. So our job is to bring that voice to DWP or or vice versa, DWP to these communities and create accountability. But within this process, that's where we want to get a 100% by 2030 commitment and a commitment on these clean energy sources as well. But who's benefiting? You know, how is the workforce being developed? Which communities are being prioritized? Is it being done in an equitable way? These are all the big picture questions and why it's so important for community participation to be at the forefront. So that's that's going to be our work in the next year. No, I think it's it's very important to point out that a lot of the most impacted and polluted communities are also the communities that are most likely to have people working in these dirty jobs, that uh, a lot of these gas plants and oil extraction happen in communities that that's their main economic lifeline. I was hoping, Walker, you could talk a little bit about the Stand LA Coalition uh, as they're working to end neighborhood drilling and what kind of transition we're looking for in terms of like fuel extraction and what we're going to do as we roll off of that, because it's always been a major industry here in LA. We forget that LA was founded as an oil city and then turned into an entertainment city. That's right, Tim. And I think it's worth taking a step back to the 1940s when LA was a a declining oil city. Um, In the 1940s, we decided that we were going to expand development for commercial, for residential, for other interests on the west side of Los Angeles. And if anyone has seen photos of LA from, I don't know, the, the early 1900s of Venice Beach or Santa Monica, say, you you know that those beaches used to be lined with oil wells. Nonetheless, in the 1940s, the city made a decision. Uh, and it zoned out all of that oil drilling so that they could begin to develop those areas and create the neighborhoods that we now know on the west side. They... Uh, coincidentally, perhaps, uh, or racistly, perhaps, uh, left out communities in South LA, left out communities down in the harbor, which have traditionally been low-income communities of color, working-class communities, immigrant communities. And to this very day, those same communities are still plagued with oil drilling um, in their neighborhoods. 
so where are the the where are the communities that are most impacted? Because there's like the Baldwin Hills oil field, but there's a lot of these spread around. So where are the the main uh, neighborhoods that you're most concerned about with Stand LA at this point? Yeah, so there's over a thousand active uh, oil wells in Los Angeles, and it's kind of funny as a precursor. We got involved in the Aliso Canyon fight not first because it was a gas facility, but because we were fighting the expansion of um, 12 uh, new oil wells in the hills up there. But the the areas that I think Stand LA is concerned with, um, I mean, obviously they're concerned with this as a policy across the city, but the, the neighborhoods that have really been taking the fight um, to the city and to the oil industry on this issue have been South LA and have been... Um, folks who live down in the harbor area or near the ports, places like Wilmington. Uh, I would say Wilmington is probably one of the most impacted communities. Uh, I don't know if you've spent any time down there, but that place is literally pocked with oil wells just about everywhere you can go, on top of all the refineries, on top of the ports pollution, on top of um, the intersection of the 710 in that community. So they're, they're hit from all sides. Uh, and then there are other areas where there are fewer oil drilling operations, but where there are oil drilling operations, they are super impactful. And those would be communities in South LA, um, specifically around wells like the Jefferson Drill Site and, um, and the Allen Coast Site, both of which are kind of USC adjacent. And then there's the Murphy Site on West Adams Boulevard, Alex? So what sounds okay uh, near the Holman United Methodist Church, which is a, a historic um, African American church that has been part of the organizing scene in, in Los Angeles for a very long time. And so, Stand LA is is primarily composed as a coalition of these frontline groups. So, Communities for a Better Environment, which uh, organizes both adults and youth down in Wilmington and some other areas around the city. Um, Physicians for Social Responsibility, which in L.A. really has a strong environmental justice bent and does a lot of um, organizing and policy work around public health intersections with these issues. Um, The Holman United Methodist Church is a a key member of this fight. And there are also groups like SCOPE um, in South L.A., and uh, Redeemer Community Partnership, which is organizing around the Jefferson Drill Site, and I'm probably forgetting one or two folks right now, but um, those are the core, and Food and Water Watch serves as an ally to those groups. So as you can probably tell, a lot of these groups are centralized around specific communities, and politically we're talking about Council District 8, 9, 10, and 15. Um, Food and Water Watch, we've been organizing in areas like the Valley. We've been uh, organizing against the gas plants on the west side. Um, And so we feel it's our obligation to uh, take Stan's narrative to communities where they can't actively organize and where we are organizing. And that's kind of what we see as allyship across the city. And so in the last two years, um, one of the biggest things we've been doing is we've been empowering our members to take this campaign uh, and take the demand for a 2,500-foot setback between sensitive uses like homes, hospitals, schools, churches, and industrial oil drilling operations. I I wanted to ask real quick, can you describe, for people who may not be familiar with some of these sites or what this looks like, how close are these sites to people's homes? How close are these, is this drilling happening to like schools and stuff? You know, is this like right out the door? Is it like you can vaguely see it off in the distance? What does this look like on the ground? That is a great question. Uh, There is zero setback between these industrial sites and people's homes or other community infrastructure. So if you're 
near the Jefferson drill site, you might be cooking dinner for your family, and right outside your window, there are workers on an industrial oil site wearing fully protective gear, and the only thing that separates you from them is maybe a pane of glass. Mm. Um, you know, some of these wells could be 10, 20 feet. Others could be, or these sites could be three feet from mm. somebody's home. Um, and in 2016, oh, shoot. Sorry, I got to take, take a step back. <sighs> and on this campaign, um, the city and the county worked together to put out a health impact study. And that came out a couple of years ago, and it essentially found what we've already known by calling literature of these drill sites all over the country, that when you live in close proximity to these sites, your chance for cancers, your chance for cardiovascular, respiratory, um, and even fertility issues go up the closer you are to these sites. And so the people who are living closest to them are the most impacted. And it, what is the city doing to try and mitigate that on any level? Because you, the city's done a study, and it's not hard to stand next to an oil well and smell it and think, this is not good for me. Um, is the city making any efforts at this point to mitigate these harms? So that's the real question right now. Um, the city put forward a motion which did three things uh, a couple of years ago, or it would do three things if fully enacted. One, it would establish a setback between industrial oil extraction techniques and sensitive uses, homes, hospitals, schools. Uh, the second thing it would do is it would make those retroactive uh, so that anything that's not in compliance with that code would have to come into compliance by a certain point, which they call an amortization period or, in layman's terms, a phase-out. But so you wouldn't be able to grandfather in the oil well next door. Like, that would have to move. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing it would do is it would set up arbitration on a case-by-case -case basis between oil operators in the city. This um, is... This is for a couple of purposes. One, the city doesn't just want to seize assets from companies. Uh, it doesn't seem very fair-minded, even though given the circumstances, these things are producing harm in neighborhoods. Um, but two, it also protects the city from takings lawsuits, mm -hmm. where the oil industry could turn around and say, you unfairly seized our property, we're going to sue you for expected profits. Mm -hmm. um, and it's modeled, as far as I understand it, after the way we've done things in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, so that motion moved through council. It cleared some committees, and there were some stipulations added to it that um, the city council wanted to see two studies, one of which was a health study done by the county, um, which came out eh, not too long ago, but long enough to feel like it's been some time. Mm -hmm. And the second study has been stalled in the office of the petroleum administrator f ever since the time that the city council requested it. Real quick, uh, the Office of the Petroleum Administrator has come up in conversations a few times, but not many people in LA know what it is or when it was formed. Hey, could you just give us some background on that real quick? Yeah, so the city of Los Angeles had police authority over zoning mm -hmm. um, when it came to these activities, and we were in a regular habit of issuing permits up until the 1980s. Uh, in the 1980s, a lot of the big players that people are familiar with, Chevron and others, kind of pulled out of town, sold off some of their assets to smaller companies that might specialize in, in scraping the bottom of the barrel. Mm. And with the explosion of new techniques, uh, not really fracking, but fracking-related techniques, mm. like high levels of hydrofluoric acid going down wellheads at pressure to, to 
dissolve rocks and, and make oil more viscous. You know, just like really extreme recovery techniques. Uh, when these techniques came to fruition, we didn't have a petroleum administrator anymore. The office had been empty for over a decade. And so uh, I think a really big victory of Stand LA is that they've put enough heat on this issue that the city has rehired that position. But unfortunately, the office is understaffed. Um, and we've seen a real delay in this study coming out, which, to my understanding, would analyze the economic impacts of the motion that I described um, and would help the city like assess what their options might be as they move forward on the issue. Um, there's a couple schools of thought to that. Is the Petroleum Administration Office understaffed or is there not enough political momentum at city council? And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves as organizers and activists is in which arena can we actually have the most influence? Mm. And I think, and, and maybe you might agree, that where we have influence is with our elected representatives. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would propose that if you can pick up a phone and call your elected official uh, maybe a couple of times in the next two or three weeks to ask them where this study is, that might help things get moving. Um, because, you know, for folks who have been living next to these wells for decades, perhaps generations, time has always been run out and mm -hmm. has always been thin. And as Angelinos, if we believe that we need to move to a clean energy future, and if we believe that we need to reduce our emissions, and we believe that we need to do that not just because climate science says so, but because it's the moral thing to do when communities are suffering in the shadow of these oil operations, then we need some expediency and we need to see our city council acting on this. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to ask for more of a a state perspective from from both of you, how does LA's plans moving forward fit into California's future? How do we, uh, how is, does LA maintain a position as a, a leader in this area? And also how do we kind of interact with the rest of the state and these other privatized utilities we've talked a little bit about? Yeah, so, so Los Angeles is a leader on multiple fronts and especially on energy and oil and gas issues, we want LA to lead and we think that if LA can lead and set the right policy, the rest of the state will follow. And for the last six years, we've been kind of banging our head against the wall because Governor Brown, while he was in office, refused to address these issues of oil and gas drilling in our communities. You know, I worked down in Carson where he actively over overturned an oil and gas moratorium that we had gotten in Carson because the largest oil company in the state wanted to drill 200 new fracking wells and we got a moratorium to stop that and he helped overturn it because he didn't want that movement to grow. And so we had a true adversary in the governor's office, an opponent in the governor's office, someone who was willing to fight us on these types of issues. And now with Governor Newsom in office, I think things are gonna change. I think things are a little more optimistic. The conversations we've been having with his office as part of what was the Brown's Last Chance Coalition, which was a huge coalition of EJ and Frontline and kind of some of the more big green groups um, in California who were pushing Brown have now been having a much more productive conversation with Gavin Newsom's office. And this issue of the 2,500 foot setbacks in neighborhood drilling in Los Angeles has really been leading in that space. And it's been a framework for him to really understand and get it that this is people's lives and it's their health. So I, I really do think that LA's leadership and our 
organizing that we've been doing for the last six years, not only in L.A., but across the state on these types of issues. We've gotten bans on fracking in San Benito, Monterey County, Santa Cruz. Um, we've taken things to the ballot to win because we know that that's how it's that's what we've needed to do in this state previously to win. But now it looks like the political winds are shifting and the organizing work we've been doing will have a positive outcome with this new governor. So LA's leadership is is instrumental in that. And on, on the electricity side of things, you know, Mayor Garcetti really stepped up and by saying we're not going to be building any new gas plants and not just, you know, one, which we've seen happen in Oxnard or in other parts of the state, like talking about one plant at a time, this is three gas plants. So he was really challenging, I think, Governor Newsom in a friendly way to step up to the plate on these types of big issues. And Governor Newsom does, you know, support 100% renewable energy. But the question is, how can we, you know, really make sure that the state is not investing any more in fossil fuel infrastructure? And this is these are questions that our communities are facing all over with pipelines or gas storage facilities or new gas plants. I mean, we have to stop with this. And that means oil and gas drilling, too. So that kind of... um, Mayor Garcetti saying this is the beginning of the end of of gas, that has to apply across every sector in California, and that's a challenge to Newsom to to do that. And to trace this back to like the roots of the shift of the political winds, um, I think we're all familiar with the idea that environmental justice communities and uh, communities across the country have been fighting for decades. Maybe it's been a quieter fight. Maybe it's been a fight that has been uncovered by news channels. But I, I thought at the turn of the new year, 2019 was going to be a season with politi- uh, um, a season of political change. And we're starting to see these young Congress members really light things on fire in Congress. And it's creating, the, and this youth movement that's come up through Sunrise is really creating this added fuel that's allowing people like Gavin Newsom to come out strong, that's allowing people like Mayor Garcetti um, to come out strong. And I think folks, as, as the millennial generation is starting to gain access to its own power, and, and as the baby boomers are starting to cycle out of positions of power, the impetus is on us to really organize and to really get ourselves into those offices so that we can build the future we know we need to have if we're going to survive this crisis. Uh, before we move on, because I do want to talk about Sunrise and some of these larger national efforts and how they tie into L.A., but one of the frustrations during the Aliso Canyon crisis um, that, that I kind of took note of was Governor Brown's sister sat on the board of Semper Energy. Uh, PG&E has, like, burned down 25 percent of our state, um, but they're all financially indemnified against, you know, the the consequences of their actions. How is that making it harder to go after them? Because it seems like the most effective way to go after a corporation is to mess with their money. And the state keeps intervening to make it impossible to mess with their money. Well, not only not only are they indemnified from their actions, but they have just a colossal amount of money. And some of them have monopolies on infrastructure systems. And a lot of our legislators don't know where to begin dealing with that, especially when you have lobbyists pounding on the door. You have God knows what um, political shenanigans going on in the background. And you have like the vested interests of working people who maintain those lines, who build them, who, for better or worse, work at these privatized companies that aren't, you know, up to snuff when it comes to keeping their lines maintained or making the investments they need to make sure everything's running smoothly. And so 
it's it's a much bigger conversation, and the unfortunate nature of the fires is that it creates this urgency, it creates this crisis, and it also creates a moment for something getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, and Aliso Canyon can be an example, um, these fights take a long time to to move the needle on. Mm-hmm. Um, Governor Brown, after three years of campaigning, we got him to concede to a 10-year timeline, and Gavin Newsom might be making stirs that he's looking at at uh, an even shorter timeline. Um, Alex, you have anything you want to say? Yeah, yeah. I would just say on the private utility side of things, you know, Food and Water Watch is calling for a public takeover of PG&E. Like, these private for-profit utilities, I was saying some nice things about them on their clean energy record, that's because the state mandated them to do it, and we have the power as, as a state um, to regulate these private for-profit utilities, um, but unfortunately, they have still been putting profit as their bottom line, and they have time and time again gone for profit instead of maintaining their facilities, which is why the Aliso Canyon blowout happened. They knew this well had issues. They Their own records, their own engineers warned of these types of problems, of removing subsurface safety valves and all these other things, the PG&E fires, like they knew these lines were too close to unmaintained, you know, trees and all these other issues. But instead of putting the money in operations and maintenance and doing your typical thing that any sound business person would do, um, they decided to maximize their profits and give huge bonuses to their CEOs. So I think the future, and, and we're seeing SoCal Gas and Semper Energy and really fight us on all of these advances on clean energy we want to make, like building electrification or shutting down these gas plants or, you know, kind of anything that that moves us off of methane, they will fight us to the death on. Like, literally, people are dying in these communities that are suffering from this type of infrastructure. So, I mean, in my mind, where Food and Water Watch is calling for a public takeover of PG&E, but, I mean, really to remove these huge obstacles like Semper Energy or SoCal Gas, you know, we have to find a way to re-municipalize or make energy really a publicly held um, good and a publicly run you know, domain. So this is a, a huge challenge to California. I think the rest of the country is going to see this too, as climate change disasters are going to threaten some of our too big to fail institutions that we need to have a public say and take over on how these types of crises are run and how we spend our money. It really comes down to the dollar at the end of the day. Like, where are we investing and what? Pri- how are we prioritizing those investments? And these for-profit utilities are not going to be making the investments that the people would be making. And on the the subject of like kind of sunrise and tying this into LA, we've seen a lot of movement on a national level, not just around a Green New Deal, but around folks like Senator Feinstein attempting to sort of cut that out at the knees with less robust proposals. Uh, What do you think needs to be done to make sure the big proposals like the Green New Deal, like moving us to 100% renewable, uh, stick and aren't just like a flash in the pan or something people get excited about and our electeds kind of like campaign on and then let it fall by the wayside. Like, how do we not recreate the office of the petroleum administrator and have that be effective? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think we 
in order to make the Green New Deal real and stick and be accountable is we just need more folks to get involved in the process, especially in the civic process. And that's a huge ask, but I've seen the movement really step up in the last several years of being more involved. And, you know, the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. And that's just, you know, the first, um, the first that we're going to see. So I hope that um, we continue to push these ideals locally, statewide, nationally. It's really going to matter with these types of decisions that are made on these gas plants, the types of decisions that are going to be made on oil drilling in our communities. And we have to set this as Green New Deal policy. Like This all fits within that umbrella of a transition off a of fossil fuel economy to clean energy economy. The work's already being done, mm-hmm. right? Like there are millions of people across the country who are doing this work, mm-hmm. um, and so we just really have to kind of figure out what the next big policies are. And I think it's about ending investments in fossil fuels, and that especially means subsidies. How do we actually invest in the transition for our workers? How are we making sure that low-income, vulnerable communities are being put at the forefront of receiving these benefits, whether it's in clean air or you know, workforce development? I think those are some of the big policy questions that have been a hang up for our movement and what is really exciting about the Green New Deal is that it is bringing like labor and environment and environmental justice communities and indigenous communities hopefully together to have this big conversation. And the Green New Deal is going to be nationally, we hope, a series of legislative proposals. And we've heard that Bernie Sanders is going to come out with a really aggressive um, kind of uh, policy proposal that builds on the OFF Act that we did um, a couple years ago, which talks about these things like ending fossil fuel subsidies and using that to fund the just transition. So a lot of this work is being done internationally as well, and there are other countries to look to and how they are successfully doing this. Like Germany just agreed to phase out all of their coal plants and put together a really robust plan for transitioning that workforce. Um, and there's a lot of political stuff behind that, right? A lot of really smart calculations that those parties made to do that work. So we have to do that here. Um, and hopefully, you know, with the change in uh, the politics in the next two years, we can really have a shot at passing this legislation. And that's what Food and Water Watch is gearing up to do. Like, we're getting serious about how do we build the political power nationally to pass really good legislation we like. Um, but also, we have to be thinking about that statewide and locally. Well, uh, uh, let me ask you this. So, for folks that are, you know, I, I never want to make it seem like individual choices are the the most important thing when we talk about like climate policy and stuff like that. But there's still changes that people can probably make in their own consumption and their own orientation towards energy use. Um, you know, outside of uh, the the civic engagement, what can people do to sort of like make LA more sustainable in their own daily life? Yeah, and I think I, I do want to preface this with I think that sometimes this is a difficult conversation to have because often the subtext of that conversation is what can people of means do? Mm-hmm. Uh, because when we're talking about like sustainability, it, it always or it always seems to come with a high dollar cost, whether it's putting solar panels on your roof, which means you have to own a home, or driving an electric car, which means you have to afford that, or not driving at all, which means that hopefully your lifestyle is is tailored toward public transit and walking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as much as people can become conscious of their own consumption and how their consumption connects into all these systems and how these things contribute to each other. So... 
Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I would. I totally agree with what Walker is saying, and I would like to take it a step even further and just learn. Um, like, we need everyone to get involved. So the personal thing that people can do is like find an hour out of their month or their week to lend it to a cause they care about. And that also means taking care of yourself. So like making sure that, you know, you're getting plenty of rest or drinking lots of water or just taking care of yourself because our movement, we need to have the capacity to grow and include more people and train more people and educate and share the knowledge that we've been building on. And, you know, um, I've seen a lot of folks get who are getting involved, you know, learning the hard lessons about burnout and these types of things. And so, you know, finding one or two things that you really enjoy to relax is also a really good thing. And hopefully that's not a very um, carbon intensive thing, but, you know, I, I this might sound so cheesy, but like really what it's going to take is just like everyone kind of giving a little bit of their time, but also doing in that in a way that's sustainable for them. And organizations like Food and Water Watch and Ground Game are making that really accessible to people who are really motivated by the political landscape, you know, see opportunity, see hope even though it's a dark, bleak world, and have an opportunity to get involved with local groups, and but do that in a way that provides balance and not overstretching yourself, and also just trying to find a little bit of balance for yourself, because the more rested and the more kind of balanced we are, the longer we can do this work, and so that's what I think people should do. Yeah. Uh, uh, as we kind of round towards the end here, uh, I did want to end on a little bit of a hopeful note. And, you know, let's say everything goes really, really well. Five to ten years out, how does L.A., how does Southern California, how does the nation in general look different with these renewable energy and less fossil fuel extraction? Like, if we get all the wins that we want to get, how would things be different for people day to day? The biggest thing I see is there's more money in the local economy. We're putting people back to work to build out this transition, we are investing in our own. Um, we're, we're investing in communities across America, essentially, to rebuild a future that we need to build in order to continue, like, uplifting society through what is already going to be a very difficult chapter of human history in in the climate era. Um, but I think we can build for that with hope if we act now, and. I would love to see local food systems. I would love to see more civic engagement, especially from young people. Um, I would love to know that our generation actually has a hope and a dream in having children of our own and can actually provide for children in in the climate era. Um, I see it as being a, a big element of hope. Yeah, I mean, as a part of the work in Los Angeles and talking about a just transition and something that's equitable in L.A., it really, I think, will our success in getting everything we want will be determined at how this work can be a vehicle for um, transformation and change and reorganizing our economy so that we can um, overcome a lot of the you know, racial um, barriers and redlining in Los Angeles or, um, you know, development that's displacing communities. We want the work that we're doing to be so comprehensive and not just about energy and oil and gas drilling, but just transition really means across every sector of life that hits on on people. So single payer health care, like all of these things, yeah. um, we want to we want that to be a part of the transformation and have a a real vehicle for 
ending all of these types of discriminatory policies that have been separating our communities. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that that points to the fact that, you know, we're not just fighting science here. We're also fighting a lot of the ingrained, like, inequalities in our culture to kind of undo this. Um, Before we close things out, any last thoughts to leave our audience with? Any last words of inspiration? Yeah, Food and Water Watch is having a volunteer meeting. So if you, if any of this sounds interesting, whether it's the Stand LA work or the 100% Renewable Energy campaign we're doing, um, energy democracy, just transition, whatever it is, please come to our next meeting. It will be on March 21st from 7 to 9 p.m. at our office in downtown. 915 Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, you can get in touch with me and Walker at foodandwaterwatch.org. Um, we also have a Facebook page and Food and Water Watch California. So we would love to see you, love to have you. The more uh, folks who get involved, the better. And, and our philosophy is really about empowering everyone to kind of plug in in the way that fits for them, works for them. We will train you, we will feed you, we will <laughs> empower you to help us make this change because we are a small shop. Uh, we only have three organizers in our office and so our volunteers really are the core of our work and we can't get it done without them. So we hope that you, after listening to this, uh, want to get involved. The day the world changes is the day you believe in yourself and you start to get active. So I hope we see you soon. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for joining me. And thank you very much for this really in-depth talk. And I think this was a really great snapshot of not just like where L.A. is, but where we can go very reasonably and very actionably, provided our electeds buy in. And it seems like they're finally hearing the pressure from the the grassroots. And you all are really helping drive that effort. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks. 